You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. You've bought your tickets. The ushers are about to open the doors. Yes, the projection has smicha is about to start. But first, you've heard of me on this platform touting NRS, a great company whose many dedicated employees I get to see in action. NRS Pay has recently launched its new cost-cutting program called Cash Discount. The way it works is any vendor using NRS Pay Cash Discount has their sale register tabulating automatically a dual pricing, which offers customers a choice of a cash payment, which could result in up to a 4% discount over swiping their card. If your business meets the $18,000 a month threshold, there's absolutely no monthly fee to incur. NRS Pay Cash Discount makes it less expensive to accept credit cards, so you'll save money while helping your customers save at the same time. NRS is offering a time-limited deal right now on this state-of-the-art system. You'll get a free card reader with zero hidden fees, no long-term contract, and no early termination fee, which means you can switch your processing plan without penalty. NRS Pay is a proud part of the IDT Corporation that I've been associated with for over 10 years and has integrity built into its corporate DNA. I know its founder and officers and salespeople, and they truly stand by their product and will help you with live stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Check nrspay.com for more information or call 833-289-2767. And now here's the projectionist, Hasmicha. Enjoy. Clear the aisles, the projectionist has Smicha. Hi, I'm here, not with Yitzchak Kolokowski, it's a little bit under the weather. I'm here with my very, very good friend, Rabbi Mark Gottlieb. Hi. <laughs> we're talking about something, we, we're just itching to talk about this because it's something that we both really are enamored of. And it's 42 years and counting since the release in June of 1981 of the Raiders of the Lost Ark. As rabbis, of course, uh, you know, without stressing it too much, I think one of the things that stands out about this first film is its connection to something that is on our hearts and minds right now during the period we're recording, which is the, all right, the, uh, the lost ark. Uh, even though the second base on Mikdash, as everyone listening probably knows, did not have that ark, but we know from our own, from the psukim themselves, that Yoshio Amelech took the Aron and put it someplace. He hid it down. There's a machlokas exactly in Chazal where it went, but it was not taken by a pharaoh <laughs> and in the ninth the century. Pharaoh Shishak. The pharaoh Shishak and taken to the city of Tadis. I'm not sure where they got that from. But the idea that the Aron is not around and that the Aron was not in Bayesheni and that the Aron, of course, represents the ultimate Hisgalus of God in the world. It was incredible in 1981 to go see this film and hear about that and actually see a display of the power of the Arna Kodesh. I did a little research with my friend Yitzchak earlier this week, Mark, and I discovered that there was maybe one or two other films in Hollywood history before that that featured the Aron as some sort of major piece to be after or involved in. Uh, one of them is the biblical epic in 1952, uh, directed by Henry King, David of Bathsheba, which I couldn't even stand watching. But it does have, if you look at it, a beautiful representation of the Aron, and uh, in some ways, a similar type of idea about what that Aron is, this, this item that accompanied the Jews in the desert and somehow 
although they don't stress it being a weapon, they do stress it as being something that is powerful and needs to be stayed away from. And again, there, another it was it was also featured in sort of a sequel to David and Bathsheba, King Vidor's Solomon and Sheba. But the Oren was not the emphasis and the 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 climax of the film. Listen, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Everybody, every everyone knows the end, right? The angel of death emerges from yes. from the Aron after after appearing as a beautiful woman turns into a ghastly skeletal like figure, then you know descends on on the Nazi soldiers. I sent you earlier, Mark, uh, Lawrence Kasten's uh, treatment, yes. and it looks like he was helped by Phil Kaufman and mm. two Jews. And if you read at least what we have available, there's a there's a, the final shooting script is very ironically it's in the Smithsonian. But when Kastan and Kaufman originally wrote this treatment, they didn't talk about this special effects stuff. What they talk about, yes, there is death and destruction, but it's more. They also speak about something which the film it's hard to really uh, see unless you stop it and watch and really. Uh, process it is that there's that that beautiful woman is really paralleled by the regish that Belloc is feeling. The remember Indy has a a double. He has a, uh, a someone who always is sort of the he's sort of like Indy's doppelganger. He's in a way his all his villainous alter ego. He's almost the same thing as him, right? They're both really. They both love antiquities. They're both really archaeologists who steal, right? They're archaeologists who steal. And and, and and instead of leaving things in their place, in their place, in their hallowed place, and this idea that these plunderers, these raiders, right? <laughs> Lyle Alzado, right? <laughs> the Oakland Raiders. There's a reason that they have that image. Raiders are are aggressive. They'll, they'll elbow people. So Belloc and, and Indy are both engaged in Geneva Shemaisis. And, and, and even though Belloc, you know, hops it always for some other quote-unquote museum or something, really, as, as, as George Lucas himself knew, it's really quasi-ethical, this whole... This whole Uvda, uh, you know, as much as, you know, he's the hero, he's really engaged in something quite, quite, quite ugly. And Belloc, for the viewer at least, can, as you said, he can be that ugly alter ego who finds himself not only trying to get it for some museum, who, they should have it, but for the, the villains that I think, do they show up? We know they're in the newest iteration, and we know they're in the third are the Nazis in, in, in any of the other, or the Nazis are in the, of the five films. They seem to be the villains in three of them, well, right? In number, in, in number four, the forgettable kingdom of the crystal skull, it's the Soviets that are the villains. And the Nazis don't make an appearance in the second film, in the prequel, right. of, the, you know, the, the Temple of Doom. But the Nazis are the villains du jour in, in, in the series. Certainly we haven't seen the, the fifth and final installment, but but I, they definitely play prominent role there. I mean, I would I, I agree with largely with your thesis of Rainbow that that we're really witnessing a, an alter ego in Belloc in the Belloc character to to Indy. But I would I would make the following distinction: Belloc seems totally self-serving. He's he's a pure mercenary. He's out for the money. He's out. He doesn't even. You know, maybe he has some 
higher ideal. It seems that he does have some higher ideal with the with the Ark, at least, right? He he becomes the Kohen Gadol. As, as right, that's what I was referring out. to. Yeah, and and there is seems to be some interest beyond the money, but Indy eventually puts all these artifacts in museums. He definitely profits from it, but it seems like there's a higher cause, a higher goal of of preserving the past, even though he might be taking liberties with the law in the pursuit of these artifacts. Ultimately, they find a home in 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 the various museums. His great friend Marcus Brody seems to be the the dean or the chancellor or the director of the museum turns into a total buffoon in the third film, uh, which yeah, I happen very, to right. Yes, it's, I think it's much more dignified in the first film. Yes, yes, I think in the third film, I, I, I'm surprised Denham Elliott agreed. I guess if you pay yeah. anybody, if you pay somebody enough money, he's willing to take any pratfall. But but let me just make my point before about what happens at the end. When Belloc, you're right, wearing the big day Kayan Godel after he says Brich May, which is it's right, and it's Brich May from the Zohar. But he also, and this is indicated in the original screenplay as well, reaches a moment of beatification. Yes. Before, uh, before you know, he, he starts to melt. <laughs> yeah, no, but he actually, in, he, but in the original screenplay, Castan writes these almost uh, like, like incredible prose talking about how he reaches a, a madrega, you know, finally recognizing God and being inspired. And even in the film, Mark, you might remember he's, you can hear him say beautiful. Yes, and and, and then when when everybody is basically slaughtered through the lightning bolt powers of God, it actually goes through Belloc. All of this is introduction, Mark, because my daughter's boyfriend said to me the other day when I told him, and I'm thinking of doing a show about Raiders. He said, "It's such a negative, uh, it's such a negative take on 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 who we are." What is the Aron? The Aron is destruction. The Aron is death. The Aron is, is, you know, it levels mountains. It kills everyone. He says, it's, if you look, if you watch the third film where they're after the Holy Grail, there it's beatific. There it's uplifting. There the music is so positive and the sense of the religion is such, is so more true. And I, I was shaking my head and saying, is he right? So I decided I was going to rewatch Raiders uh, this week. And I have to say guiltily, I also watched the third one. Uh, I think my my daughter's boyfriend has something uh, is right. I, I do think there is a very you know we talk about the Aron and this the the connection we have and without getting into biblical parshonas here, but it, it, it does seem that there's very little positivity about this icon. It is it is this it's it's God as a destructive God. God as Stay. Be careful what you do. Uh, when Indy, in the very beginning of the film, tells the government agents about what the Aron is, like they don't know. Of course, this is just exposition for us watching. And he takes out some sort of uh, Bible. Man. It's a big, a big edition with illuminated panels and pictures. And he shows that great scene of the of Bnei Israel carrying the Aron in the midbar and w- using it as a war machine. Yes. Right. And one of the FBI guys says, good God. And in the answers, this was in the original screenplay as well. That's what the Hebrews thought that that's what God being good is. God being good is we're weak, but this is something if we believe in, we'll be behind it. Obedience to this God means God will slay and, and, and destroy our enemies. Even the fact Mark that, 
the Nazis, again, this was the incredible hop, you know, that the Nazis, the most anti-Jewish uh, group ever in mankind's history, wants to use, you know, our our own. To well, there's actually a there's actually a scene with dialogue in when they're camped out in that underground bunker in the island where they're going to finally, you know, have this revelation of the of the ark. The German, I don't know, he was a sergeant or German. The head honcho Nazi says something to Belloc says, "We're we're a little uncomfortable with this Hebrew with this Jewish with this, this Jewish Hebrew, with this Jewish ritual ritual or Jewish art right and yeah. and so." you get a sense already on the part of the Nazis that they're ambivalent, but Belloc seems to transcend that. And, you know, he's not a Nazi. He, he There are a couple of lines throughout the film where he kind of brus- you know, bristles at the idea that he's a Nazi. He's not a Nazi. He's just in the employ of the Nazis to find the Ark. And, and the scene, which I guess indicates Indy's change, because in the beginning of the film, um, you know, Indy says that, He's after the Ark. He wants it. He's, he'll do anything for it. But he doesn't really believe. He says, I don't really believe any of that. Right? Come on. But there is that moment where, you know, you know, he, he stands there with the bazooka and, and he yes. could blow the Ark up. But he won't. And, and Belloc says to him, you want it as much as me. You, right. this, is, this is history itself. This right. is something which is greater. So it seems that, you know, he's already come to understand that there might be something here. What's interesting in the original screenplay, one of the things that that Indy says, which they left out of the, uh, the script, was that the Hebrews believed that the Ark would only be found when the true Messiah appears. Which is, you know, again, I can see why you know the the people in at Paramount decided they're going to take that out because that would be an insult, of course, in some ways, to the billions of Christians around the world, that, oh, well, the Ark is only for the true Messiah, the true Messiah hasn't come yet. So it's interesting that they left out that aspect. We have Harrison Ford, who, of course, is just you know, one of, you know, it really, really propelled him to superstardom. Uh, despite his roles in Star Wars, uh, we're in, in American graffiti in a very smaller way. This was really in 1981, which made Harrison Ford, you know, almost the age of, he was almost 40 years old when this came out. This really turned him into a matinee idol and a, a super bankable star in Hollywood. What his input was in the film was probably minimal. Harrison Ford eventually has more influence. But we know Harrison Ford, his, his mother's Jewish. Halakhically, he's a Jew. Spielberg, of course, was brought in. And Spielberg obviously had a lot to do with shaping the eventual film. As much as it was George Lucas's baby, Spielberg has, was the director on the ground making those type of decisions. Kazdan and Kaufman writing it. I'm not surprised, but it's sort of like, yeah, it is somewhat, it was great to see the Auron, but it was actually in some ways a little bit debilitating. There's one little aspect, Mark, that I think saves it from looking at Judaism as this destructive, elemental, vengeful God. And that is, as the Aron sort of comes back to Earth, sort of like in the Wizard of Oz, sort right. of sort of comes sort of sort of comes down from the whirlwind. Right. And then the chorus falls the, right the on. The chorus falls, right? And yeah. then you see in a shot, you see that Indy and Marion have been saved. Right. Seemingly because 
they didn't open their eyes. They didn't like, open their eyes. Right. That's what but it was, Don't but, open but, your eyes. But, but it was more than that. To me, I, even when I saw the film 42 years ago, I thought it was the fact that it kills bad people. Hill, it yes, kills Rashaim. Yes. And yes. when, and, and if you notice in that last scene, right before you have the, the sort of the client, the, the epilogue, Marion and Indy have their hands extended to each other in a double to what's in the background with the Kruvim that are Soivim and Feim. So right. I think as much as Spielberg did not buy in or understand what we understand about the Aaron being the Rabbeinu Shalom, whose Ava is Moli Kolei Lomais, and that the Ratzon of the Aaron is a way to connect to humanity and Asher Ivoyed L'Choshama, there at least is an aspect that the Kruvim represent love. And that somehow Indy and Marion are saved because what they have is love for each other, which the Kruvim also symbolize. And I don't know if anyone has ever made that aura about this, but yeah. if you look at the film, you can see it. It's so clear that it's almost too obvious what Spielberg was trying to do. Let's talk a little bit about Spielberg and his, his evolution as a Jew, which I think Co- corresponds with his evolution as a filmmaker is we both of us saw the Fablemans and we both liked it a lot. Yeah. And and if the Fablemans is an accurate film description of who Spielberg is as a Jew developing, it seems like when he started making films, he was very ambivalent about his Judaism. Yeah. It was probably a bit of a hindrance in some ways. At least his perception was that. He seemed to deny it, you know, again, as, as much as it was sort of deep in his memory banks, he sometimes says that he had like an orthodox upbringing. He sometimes says that. I don't know yeah. what he means, but it seems like he sort of like cr- squashed a lot of that memory, or at least he thought that was something that he could, you know, just you know shunt to the side. Of course, at the end of the decade, doing uh, two incredible things, which, of course, is not only making Schindler's List, but also starting the whole Holocaust, the Shoah Foundation, yeah, and yeah. Uh, the the personal money and and involvement that Spielberg did, not to even mention all the filming that happened. I mean, this is a a, a tremendous neches for Klal Yisrael. All these survivors talking on film to have a record of Jewish life before the Holocaust and to understand all the various stages. I think for Spielberg, this was like a a, a holy act for him. Yeah. But I think this is also really in a way we could talk about, you know, Spielberg, you know, do you expect him to really, you know, to understand things? His mom seems to have hopped that Yiddishkeit is very loving and embracing and and is something that uh, I mean, her restaurant was a was a yeah. place that so many Jews went to. Right. And she was the Milky she, Way. She would greet the, the customers. She would greet the diners. And she was very proud that it was kosher, mahadra, yeah. and yeah. she's very much aware of those things. And again, I, you wonder where Spielberg was here. You know, this, this indie, I think in the third film, although we're really talking about the first, I think Spielberg went whole hog in, you know, he was the one who pushed for the Sean Connery character to yes. be primal. A great, a great role, by the way. I think it's one of Sean Connery's, it's not, sophisticated but it is there's something very wholesome and and compelling about it yes i agree and in that film you could see spielberg is working out his own you know difficult relationship with his dad where his dad yes. seems to be obsessed about something and, yes. and and the son is also an obsessive but in a different way different way yeah i think harrison ford 
is is you know his acting is an underappreciated in the third film especially when yes sir right words, here he is this this dashing superman of a of of a right. hero but as soon as he crashes in the window and he right. meets his dad he's he's immediately transported back to being a 15 year old or a 12 year old yeah but but that, there you could see it's spielberg working out his dad issues and E.T. also, of course, with the missing dad. There's yeah. always that's happening. I, I, I'm wondering if in the first Raiders, the one that we were talking about, other than the technical aspect of getting all the cliffhangers to work, I wonder, do you see it as, as, as Spielberg? Do you see it as like, you know, do you see it, any themes there that that or is it just meant to be a good time? I think it's 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 the beginning of this franchise. They They're not they haven't developed the characters as much. It's it's really a an old fashioned serial film come to life. But again, with a lot more depth, those serial characters, whether it was Spy Smasher or Buck Rogers, if you if you watch any of those, Mark, you know in those original serials, the acting was wooden. Yeah. The everything was obvious. This sort of was a, a homage to them. Yes, a homage, but done a lot, a lot more convincingly, a lot more the production values. The acting, everything better. You know, we talk about Jews. There's no Jews in it besides all the Jews that wrote it and made it. But I think one of the things Spielberg was after, and I'm not sure, again, we'd have to look in the original script, was to have a very positive view of Islam, a very positive view of Muslims and Islam in general. The John Reese davies character, Salah. Salah, yes. He's a family man. He's going to help him. Yeah. He's, he's almost like the noble Muslim. Yes. The Muslims come out very good. The Muslims are not, you know, later in the 80s, of course, the Muslims were the villains, you know, and especially in the 80s, 90s. And, uh, you know, the the, you know, the Arab terrorists here in in Raiders, there's a very positive portrayal, you know, of 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 that iconic scene in the marketplace with the Arab swordsmen (laughs) on the, the Arab, these Arab, you know, mercenaries who are chasing him. The little monkey, the little, little, little Arab monkey. <laughs> I think that scene, which, of course, our listeners, if you don't know it, this is where, you know, he's challenged by a uh, an incredible, you know, scimitar wielding swordsman who seems to want to take on, you know, Indiana Jones. And he looks at him with, you know, sort of a disgust and takes his, his gun out of his holster, just shoots him. I think that might have been Harrison Ford's own idea to do that. That was a great, great scene. There, but there is a sort of a, a an Arab villain, the monkey and his trainer. In yes. other words, the monkey that has ingratiates himself into Salah's family is really a spy for yep. the Nazis uh, of where Indiana Jones is. The, the monkey even does a Sieg Heil, I think, at one point. <laughs> Maybe. We always know when you throw in a monkey and animals, these are all part of the crowd pleasing stuff to have, you know, it probably was one of the first industrial light magic and special effects were able to make it somewhat of a convincing monkey. Of course, he ends up, uh, he ends up swallowing these poison dates. He ends up eating a poison that that his trainer, that his master put into the dates. You know, there's a number of assorted Nazis. I guess the one who is the, um, is 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 Ron Lacey who was wasn't there are they're all Brits 
Paul Freeman, who played Belloc, was a Brit. Ronald Levy. You know, the Brits are everywhere in Hollywood playing all different sorts of uh, nationalities. What did you think of uh, of that character? Of oh, the- he was very menacing. I, I thought he was a great character. He's, he doesn't get a lot of screen time, but he's got he's got that menacing look and that kind of laugh and that voice, the high pitched voice, the high pitched nasally voice. I, I, that was a character that I remembered. It was seared into my mind for for. For a while, I, I thought that was a very effective kind of nasty. Yes, clearly, they probably cast him for his looks rather than his uh, his acting ability. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the idea seems to be that he is the symbol of Nazi sadistic behavior. Torture, the torturer. He's the torturer. He's right. the heavy, yeah. Right. Of course, he does get one little humorous scene where he seems to be taking out some item of torture, but it all it is... It's the hanger. It's just <laughs> it's a, a hanger from the hanger. It's a great scene. It's a wonderful, this, you know, a great diversionary, you know, scene. I think the humor in Raiders is perfectly sliced in. I think one of the problems of the third film is that it's too much of a laugh fest. There's too many aspects of of indie flopping of people falling down of of certainly of, the marcus brody character is made specifically foolish i think that part of what makes this film raiders iconic is the knowledge of where humor comes in it isn't sort of the snide james bond humor that eventually took over that franchise to me however i, I think the scene that i remembered other than of course we talk about the our own and it's uh, it's death power is in these two battles that he has against Nazi antagonists. The first one is like an Ubermensch who, if you know, it looks like he's a professional wrestler, right? Pat, um, Pat Roach. He was in all three of the original Indiana Joneses. He was the only actor, the only actor besides Harrison Ford to appear in all three of the original trilogy. The original. And of course, he is the, he notices that, you know, Indy is making trouble right. and he immediately strips off his, his, his shirt, his shirt <laughs> and says, I'm ready for a fight. And, and, and he really represents in that way for me when I was watching it. Yes, this is the Aryan Supermensch. This is the Ubermensch who's going to put down the American good guy. And, the truth is, of course, he would have pulverized and killed Indy. Sure, you know, uh, you know, had you know, had the propeller not had he not been propelled somewhere else. So that fight, you know, Spielberg stages it really well. Yeah. And I think part of it is that Indy's losing. In other yeah. words, the 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 point is is you have a hero who is vulnerable, a hero yeah. who isn't all muscle, and and of course, the other great fight scene is the um, sort of young. German soldier who gives Indy a run for his money when Indy is driving away with the with the jeep at the end, the right. truck at the end, and this guy seems to have as much girth and determination as Indy. And as right. you remember, he climbs over the top, and you know, and they fight. Indy, shoots, he shoots him, and then he keeps on punching him in the in the wound. Yes, and he's really doing a lot of damage to Indy there. Right. So I thought those fight scenes were were yes. very well thought out. They really indicate that it isn't just like a batman whap sam power like i think one of the problems of today's uh, blockbusters is that when these fights happen it's so frenetic it's so fast the camera work is so dark that you almost don't even get a sense of what's really going on here it's not like oh here's the stunt double they did a great job indicating 
you know, what Indy goes through. And I mean, you have to think about some of the great fight scenes in Mission Impossible that have been choreographed. I I think there are franchises and and no, you're right. That don't rely on CGI. Yeah. That don't rely on CGI. Yes. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Tom Cruise, I think, you know, took a page out of Harrison Ford's book here, as far yeah. as that goes. And also Spielberg and and Kazdan and and Lucas allow it to be realistic. When Indy takes off his shirt afterwards, you can see the guy's been beaten up and pulverized, right. as opposed to so many other films where the hero seems to be unscathed after he's been, you know, in, in, in a terrible fight. Also, I would just mention one last thing is that unlike the third film that sort of like gets a little bit into the sexual behavior of Indy, there's no sex in the first film. Right. Really. You know, he falls asleep. He falls asleep. Yes. It's very quaint, you know, little little touch there. Right. So I think which is which, again, I think is one of the reasons why, you know, it has a wholesomeness uh, to it. Is yeah. uh, you know we understand that there's been some history and there's some love lost. We learn more in the third film, I think, about what happened that that he walks out like a week before the wedding that he was supposed to get married to Marion. It must be in the fourth film. In the fourth film, I guess they do it in the fourth. They brought film. Karen Allen back in the fourth. She's film. back in the fourth film, and from what I know, no spoil, you know, spoiler alert, she's back in the fifth film. Right, I think so. I think she is uh, going back in time, going back and forward. In some ways, I'm happy that there is, for the fans, a development of this character. But there's another part of me, Mark, that wishes they never went any further. I mean, we, we know of so many franchises that sort of devolved. Did there need to be a Jaws 2, right? Did there, did, you, know, I, you know, with Aliens, I'll admit that the second film, in many ways, is a different way of exploring the idea of, of, of this terrible life form. Uh, turning it into war film. But you know, I don't know. I mean, I, to me, the first, you didn't really need, definitely didn't need the second one. Well, I, I, I like the idea that this character is developed and, and that, that you learn, you know, you have a backstory that's very engaging, as we pointed out, that prologue in, in and the third Last film. Crusade is is very compelling as film and, and as a backdrop to his character development. I like the fact that, you know, We'll obviously have to see the fifth film, and we should we should do that, you know, <laughs> soon. Yeah, yeah. But I I do like the arc of the character, even in the weaker, very weak, I would say, fourth film. You know, you you learn more about the character. There are some qualities that just seem everlasting and and immutable in 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 the the rugged maverick and adventurer who's also the pr- professor of of archaeology in the college and has all the girls swooning at him. I think part of what the third film does, and I'll grant you, is sort of explain how he can engage in this wild outlaw behavior, but believe it's for the good, as you say, because he has been trained to be disciplined by his dad. His dad was all about being disciplined. And, and his and dad, I think you're right, that the dad was about discipline. The dad was also a man of faith. Right. I think there is a sense of his distancing from the faith. Every every time you you encountered Henry Jones Sr., it was there was a a, a profession of some faith. Uh, you know, you don't blaspheme. He slaps him across the face. Or saying Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. He says you do not blaspheme. There's something profoundly religious about that character. 
and his whole search for the, you know, for the Holy Grail as his life's vocation. So I think that's another way in which the character is is moving away from the father, at least initially in the younger years, until he reconciles. And we, we pointed this out, Avrema, before we went to, to record, that Indy seems to forget after after each of these episodes that the supernatural is, is very real. Like, how could he have forgotten from his prequel in India to Raiders? And then how could he have forgotten from Raiders to Last Crusade? Right. And yet he seems to be perennially reverting to a more skeptical stance. It's very odd. You know, without getting too holy on you, we all in many ways, you know, we come down from our Yom Kippur high and we forget. Right. We we come down from Shabbos and we forget as well. I think we, we forget. Uh, we forget the focus. We forget the presence, but we don't forget the actual belief. Like we we would say the same utterances, the same platitudes of we believe, but we can't achieve. We can't actualize. He seems to actually deny or, or extre- express real doubt about the supernatural. Despite the fact that he's witnessed incredible things, things that cannot be explained. In the third film, which is only supposed to take two years, supposed to be only two years later, 1938. And what he's teaching is, he says, archaeology is about facts, not truth. Yes. And again, there's facts and truth. And I think that's part of what, you know, you can even go back to the first film. You know, there's you, you could become a person who is obsessed with facts. And I think that's part of the beauty, in a way, of the first and third films, is that you need to have Yudias, right? You need to know Latin. You need to know history. You need to have the facts of things. But it's a means to an end, as opposed to the facts are part of truth. The facts are part of of an MS that, as you say, is really a spiritual level of of of, of, of illumination and understanding. Now, that's the thing that that, as you say, he seems to forget. Now, again, obviously, it's it's convenient for that because there's got to be a, there's got to be an uh, there's got to be an arc for his character every sure. single time. Sure. But but when we talk about it, I guess you're right. It is, I would say, Mark, if we're going to make sense of it, and I, I I think Kazdan probably and the others who worked on this character or George Lucas thought about it, is that the being squashed and limited and not being brought in which what Henry Jones Sr. has not brought him in, I think it turns sometimes the progeny into, yes, I'm going to, in a way, parallel my what, the obsession of my dad, but he is never really, you say he's a man of faith, he's never really taken Indy and thrown him in to swim in that. And I think that might be ultimately why, you know, he, <laughs> on one hand, you know, he can't embrace belief. In other words, that's been his defense mechanism that has allowed him to grow as a separate individual from his dad. He, he and, and and it's clear he he's able in so many ways to outdo his dad. Right? He's yeah. able to he's able to do much more than his father can do. He's he's found more things. It, it is quite moving, I think, when you know he's going to get the Grail, and you can Spielberg shoots between. Both of them speaking, the penitent man, yes. the penitent man will kneel. Right. Um, so I, I think he was eventually able to to come to that truth as opposed to just facts. Well, Mark, I think we really um, we schmoozed a lot about this movie. I think we both recommend it. If anyone's not seen it, oh, it's, yeah. it's it's worth. They probably could have cut some of it out, though. I thought the sequels were a little bit draggy. I thought the 
even the last crusade certainly kingdom of the crystal soul was poorly paced and and way too draggy and long i i thought raiders moves along at a decent clip i i i didn't think that it was terribly long it's under two hours i believe there's a lot of digging going on over there in tunisia but i i think all that digging you know even though i would say the scene which didn't really fill me with much spirit where he discovers you know the light coming in by by zricha sahama i yeah. guess where yeah. he's able to find it but to me the scene where he's by the in the firelight where he takes off his disguise and in the shadows you see him changing into the yeah. fedora I think yes. that is such a that is such a beautiful shot that Spielberg constructed. There are a lot of shots like that when he comes into the when he comes into the bar in Nepal, you know, his shadow. And and I think that's really part of it's even bigger than Harrison Ford himself, the the shadow of the movie hero, the shadow of this character that so many in a much more innocent time kids would run on the Saturday mornings to watch and see. And I think that's part of what that shadow is. What's incredible is, is that Spielberg made the film in 81, talking about things that had happened 40 years, you know, you know, 40 years earlier. And here we are in 2023. And not only are we still talking about it, but we could go to the movie theaters and watch it. That's right. Incredible. Right. This is something which only the, the longevity of, of, of our actors and, and, yes. and what special effects is able to do. Well, Mark, we've got a date uh, later. Uh, for the rest of you, watch your step on the way out. We'll catch you next time and have a meaningful tissue above. <laughs> Be well. Take care. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. Music.